Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia, how are you? Hi, Carrie. I am very excited to be here today because of what we're going to talk about, but also because I'm recovering from the filthiest chest infection I think I've ever had. And I have spent a lot of time lying down and inside my own brain. So I'm just like delighted to be moving out of it. But that's why I'm a little croaky, I'm afraid, today. How about you? How are you? Tell me about the world of health and dynamism. I I miss it. (laughs) Do you know what? I'm not bragging, but it's been quite nice. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you witch. No, tell me. Shine the sunshine on me down the airwaves. You know, today there was a gentle breeze. Uh, The sun was out. The flowers were growing in the meadow. I I breathed in the fresh air on my daily run. I saw some goslings. It was Uh... it was nice. And I have to say, I am just so excited to be here today because we have a slightly different show and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute, won't we? We will, but before we do, we've got to get business out of the way as always. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash litfriction. You will also get access to an extra mini-sode each month. There are now 28 waiting for you there and you'll have the chance to suggest themes as well. So as I was teasing, Octavia is not only my beloved co-host today down the line from London, but she (laughs) She lives in the line. She's always down the line. She lives in the line. (laughs) The liminal space. That's right. Between London and Oxford. Anyway, she is also my interviewee. So you probably know by now that Octavia's book, This Ragged Grace, is coming out and in fact is published the day that this mini-sode comes out on the 1st of June. So I could not resist the chance to grill her about it. And, and this is really coming from me. This is not Octavia saying, I must talk to our listeners about my book. It was me saying, our listeners must hear you speak about your lovely book and I must know more about you. So I am going to grill her. Just kidding. I'm going- <laughs> I am actually legitimately nervous, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to gently and lovingly ask you some questions about a book that I genuinely loved and cannot wait to talk about. And it it is really true. So in case you don't know, This Ragged Grace tells the story of Octavia's journey through recovery from alcohol addiction and the parallel story of her father's descent into Alzheimer's. Looking back over this time, each of the seven chapters explores the feelings and experiences of the corresponding year of her recovery, tracing the shift in emotion and understanding that comes with the deepening connection to this new way of life. But I should also say it's about so much more than that, many things that we will not get into. But in the interview, we'll be talking about things like the form of the memoir in general, structure, the writing process, finding a voice, and writing about life and what that means and what you have to keep and what you have to leave out. So I really can't wait. Please stay tuned. Okay, Octavia, let's get into it. I want to start by asking you, did you always know that you wanted to write in the form of memoir for this book? And did you have any reservations about the form of the memoir? Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I had a lot of reservations about it, and it is not a form I ever imagined I would write in. And actually, When I started writing this book, I was working on something completely different. I was trying to find a way to bring my thesis research about hysteria into a more creative nonfiction kind of book. 
And I had been tying myself in knots, trying to write this quiet sort of avant-garde iconography of hysteria where I was like becoming characters from paintings and bringing them out into the real world and dancing them through Paris and like into the rooms of hysterical patients. And it was exciting and fun, but it was very hard to pitch. (laughs) And in a way, I realized I was sort of treading water in my own writing. And I know it's work I'll come back to, and I hope it will have a life at some point. But it was this strange feeling when I was working on it, I felt like I was sort of trapped still one foot in my academic life and my academic head as a writer. And there was this other expression that really wanted to come out and I couldn't figure out where to put it. And my agent, Kirsty, who is a very wise person and also just a wonderful reader and thinker, noticed that I'd written a few pieces of journalism about my dad and also about my recovery over the years. And she gently said, you know, does that feel like it might be a a quicker channel in a way, like a more direct channel, I guess, to try writing? And I was very resistant to begin with because I thought, well, I can do that kind of writing in these very contained articles or essays. But the thought of writing a whole book, the thought of how much of yourself you give to the page in a whole book was very daunting to me. And she just said, why don't you try writing 3000 words? just sit down and write. Don't give yourself any rules, just do it and see what happens. And that became the first 3000 words of the book. And it was like that exercise opened a door that then I couldn't really close. And not to say it all came out in a wonderful, blissful, easy stream of words, because it certainly didn't, but something opened. It was like being granted permission to try something else. But yeah, I definitely had reservations. And, and you know, so many of our conversations were in my mind when I started thinking about it, because obviously the memoir form is something you and I've thought about a lot together on the show and also just like in our conversations, right? And I do think it's, I think it's a complicated form to approach, but I also, what I discovered through writing the book and through the books that choosing to write this book led me to, I think it is such an exciting, dynamic form of writing. And it has so much more possibility than a lot of other forms that can be more restricted. So I I kind of rehabilitated my relationship to the idea of memoir writing. And I'm now (laughs) extremely enthusiastic about it all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're right, though. The memoir can hold so many different things. Memoir just means that in at some point, you're talking about something that happened to you, right? Right. In some ways, it's almost the most versatile form because of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So as you mentioned, one of the things that this book is about is recovery from alcohol addiction. And I know you've thought a lot about this. You've thought a lot about writing about it. And I wonder when you when you sat down to write about recovery, were there any myths that you particularly wanted to dispel? What did you want to show about it? And were there any tropes that you wanted to avoid? Yeah, definitely there were. I had a lot of anxiety about it to begin with because I felt for a long time that I wasn't ready to write about it in a way that wouldn't make me untenably vulnerable. And I think it's something that happens a lot to especially women writers who are dealing with addiction and writing and thinking about addiction. It's easy to be encouraged into telling that particular story when you're still very new to recovery and very raw in it. And I was approached by editors many years ago, a couple of different editors to write about it after I published an essay in some such stories. And I said no at the time because I was really conscious that I didn't feel 
for me that I was well enough, I guess, to really deal with those things on the page in that way. And when it came to starting working on this book, I was about seven years sober and I'm now almost 10. And I feel like that gives me a, a window of distance that for me personally made it feel very safe. And it made me feel like I, I had come through enough of the lived experience of recovery to be able to reflect on it and have things to say about it that would be useful from that longer view. And there is so much that can be useful from within the chaos of it and early recovery and the tenderness of it. And there are writers out there who've done an amazing job in those days of their lives. But I, I think you just have to know as a writer what's right for you and what's okay for you as a human being <laughs> beyond like an art, being an artist or someone who's trying to make sense of something. So when I came to it, I was really thinking, well, I think there's a lot of really great writing out there that deals with the chaos of addiction in a really confessional and kind of raw and white hot way. And I am not that kind of writer and I'm not the kind of person who who wants to put all of my blood and guts out in the world in that way yet. And maybe that's a question of maturity and experience and maybe it will shift and change. I don't know. But I knew I didn't want to write something that was totally confessional. As I wrote, it ended up having to have more of that in it and almost the writing coaxed that out of me. And it was about learning to trust what was coming. But I was very certain that I wanted to write about the experience of being in recovery more than I wanted to write about the experience of living inside addiction. Because I think the truth is addiction ends up in the same place for everybody who suffers from it. It might be fun and exciting and sexy and glamorous for a really short moment, <laughs> but you end up in a very monotonous, depressing place. And the thing that writing about addiction that I don't like tends to do is glamorize it. And I was very determined not to do that because I know for me as a recovering person, when I read work that did glamorize it early in my recovery, it was destabilizing, right? And I think I held in mind the idea that, you know, it's good to write the book you wish you could have read. And in early recovery, I would have loved to read a book that was more about what does a life in recovery actually look like? You know, I knew that the promise of ease and comfort was was false because life isn't like that. But I wanted to know, was it going to be possible to survive good and bad things. Like, would I suddenly become a boring nun? <laughs> was my like life of fun and, and pleasure over? Or I don't know. I, I think I wanted to know what it was going to be like, and I didn't know where to go for that kind of story. So that was how I wanted to approach it. Yeah. I really like that idea. And the other kind of main narrative in this book is about your dad and about him as a person, but also caring for him when he has Alzheimer's. And I wonder, were those two, th were sort of recovery and your father always two things that you saw together? Was it, was it something obvious that, that was a story that needed to be told in tandem or how did, how did they kind of come together as an idea? It sort of happened in the writing in a way. I mean, when I started with those 3,000 words, that was all just like the Stromboli chapter, which doesn't feature my dad at all. And it's very much about those very early days of recovery and surrendering to this idea that you might need to change your life. But I realized once I figured out how the story would be told, there was no way of not bringing my dad into it because my experience of of, of loving him through this terminal illness over many years was such a f fundamental part of my life that to write a book 
that was dealing with chronology in a in a truthful way as in I would you know it's it's written in chronological order to to not include that would feel like this very strange thing but I think also it came about because I was really meditating on the idea of recovery and how you know when you're looking at addiction recovery the word has this particular context but I started to think about what does recovery mean in a wider context and and I felt this heaviness around the word and I couldn't work out why it felt heavy and I thought on it and I thought on it and I went on some long walks to think about it. And I realized it was because at the time of, of coming up with this first chapter, my father was still alive and he would never recover. And it was this really clear moment of going, how can I write about recovery in an honest way when I'm also living this, this experience of loving someone who, who is dying very slowly, but they are dying, they have a terminal illness. And so then that became this kind of guiding principle in in how I approached it. And that helped me figure out the structure and how to tell it. And it felt like a very important counterbalance because I do think that, you know, addiction is an illness where death is folded into it in a really massive way. And the idea of recovery from addiction is all about life and death and, you know, what you can escape and what you can survive. And actually, I think what became clear was that a lot of the things that you're forced, frankly, to consider and think about when you have to recover from addiction are things that actually apply outside of the boundaries of addiction and outside of the boundaries of those experiences. And, you know, addiction, addiction recovery can feel like quite a rarefied experience for a human being to have. But actually, we should all consider what the word recovery means. We will all have periods where we need to recover from something whether that's illness or you know grief or loss of any other kind accident whatever it's really fundamental to learning how to live <laughs> and to kind of grow old and be in the world so it was also a way i think of helping me figure out how to make what i was talking about relevant in a bigger way you write so lovingly about him and so sensitively about caring for someone with alzheimer's and one of the things that I really found meaningful in this book was your description of how recovery for you made you so much more present for those experiences. And that was a really important thing that you could be there fully in yourself. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and maybe reflect also on what it was like to (laughs) revisit those that being there for that, because I imagine it was really tough to have to re-experience that while you were writing it. It was strange. It changed over the course of the book because things changed and the pandemic hit or was there already, I think, but my father moved into a nursing home and everything changed and then became folded into the narrative. But I think writing those scenes of of looking after him, which happened before I sat down to write, the ones that were reflecting back to the early days of his illness, they were they were very important actually. And they were, you know, some of them I'd written already. I'd written in my diaries, and I did go back to my diaries quite a lot to jog my memory because my memory is chaos, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> my memory is really driven by feelings and sensations and and vignettes. I suppose it doesn't exist in linear time. And I mean, we'll talk about this in a bit because the chronology of this book, like (laughs) nearly broke my brain. But I think there was something really powerful in conjuring those scenes into words because they lived within me in this really potent way as, as these 
moments that I'd lived that felt lifted out of the daily because they were so poignant. And I think, you know, writers always get asked if it was cathartic to write about difficult things. And I think it's such a bullshit question, but it's one that comes up a lot. It's not about catharsis at all. I think if you are someone who exists in in the world of words and you understand yourself through words, then putting things in order with words is a helpful way to kind of learn and understand them, which isn't about catharsis. It's about understanding, really. And it's about reflecting, making sense of things that you've lived through. And I think there was something very strange about those moments of complete and total presence because I was 100% there, but I was also in some ways experiencing them as though they were happening to someone else within my mind. And when I came to write them, I had these really crystal clear, almost like scenes from a film. But I think also it became about honoring the experience that that we shared, my father and I, in those moments, because I don't know, you know how I feel about the mundane and, and looking after <laughs> someone who's ill brings a whole new kind of mundanity into your life because there is a lot about caring for an ailing body that is deeply, deeply mundane. But these moments of really strong emotional connection with somebody as they are changing really profoundly in front of your eyes, there's something so extraordinary about it. It's philosophy, it's pure poetry, it's kind of something else. And I wanted to capture it because I also think it's something that I would have missed if, as you say, you know, if I hadn't been sober. And in some ways, those scenes are kind of a reminder to me that like, if you're an escapist at heart, like I am, you know, escapism can be wonderful, but it can, you can miss out on, on reality. And, the, and there's a kind of version of really condensed intense reality that is more powerful than escapism. It's more electrifying. And that is really about love and connection and generosity of of kind of soul and spirit with someone else. Mm. So that's what I was trying to capture. I don't know if I managed it, but that's, <laughs> that was my intention. That's <laughs> what I love to hear. And I think you really did capture it. You've been teasing the structure and the chronology. So, <laughs> so let's talk about that. How did you land upon the structure of this book? Because there are a few layers to it. And I wonder if you could you could talk about it and how you got there, really. Honestly, it was the bane of my life because <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't exist in linear time. And I wanted to write something that also didn't exist in linear time. But people wiser than me were like, structure is everything. And with nonfiction like this, anyway, the way I did it was we sold it on proposals. So it meant writing a very detailed proposal working on that with my agent and then pitching it to editors and publishers. So honestly, this process, I hated it. It was vital for me. As someone as unruly as me, it was like the thing. And it was the same when I did my thesis and PhD. You have to write a thesis proposal and, you know, it involves distilling your ideas, figuring out what it is you really want to talk about and think about. And crucially, figuring out the structure. And it's that classic thing of like boundless creativity is all well and good, but if it doesn't have any boundaries, how can it ever become anything that has form? And it needs form in order to be translatable. So, you know, the structure necessity was vital. And of course, it wouldn't be the book it is without it. I like to think it could have been a different kind of jazz kind of book, but (laughs) (laughs) that only I would enjoy. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. It really... It was very necessary. And and I had all these really mad ideas about it to begin with. And again, wiser people than me just kept saying, simplify, simplify, you know, simple is good. 
and you can be as complex as you want within the simple structure, but simple is good. And I realized that when I was looking at these two people, these two figures, me, the narrator, and and my father, who were really crucial to this story, the the propulsion of it was the fact that we were moving in opposite directions and we were kind of crossing each other in the middle. And as I got better, he got worse. And as I was remembering, essentially recovery is about remembering and addiction is kind of about forgetting. He was forgetting. So it was this sort of mad swapping of roles in a way. And of course, as you care for a parent as they ail, you you eventually step into the role of parent for them in, in lots of ways, some people more than others. But you know, that was the dynamism of it. And that was kind of it. So I thought, well, in that case, it has to be chronological because you need to be able to show the progression in both directions of these two journeys, I, I guess, you know. But that meant, Carrie Plitt, that I had to situate myself in linear time. Oh, no. <laughs> it nearly <laughs> broke my brain. I'm not kidding. It nearly <laughs> broke my brain. First of all, I learned that like I had got several years of my life completely jumbled up. <laughs> And had like transplanted certain experiences to different moments in time and linearities. And it was, that was very confusing. Luckily, I've always kept a journal. So I spent a lot of time in my journals with note cards spread out all over the floor, tucking them in with headings like Linguini Night and Fast Wheels and Blue Shoes. <laughs> and it all went quite, it, it did go quite mad for a bit. And I think actually there is a, a message of caution here for memoirists and writers in general who keep journals. I think that the journal can be like an absolute goldmine in some respects, but it can be a terrible, terrible prison in others because you go too deep into them. I think it's very easy to get locked into a way of thinking or a way of expressing something that you that you wrote at that time. And actually to free yourself from that again is really important. So you can come to it with your with your writer's perspective, your narrative perspective in the present. So that was also a very interesting process, kind of revisiting these different versions of myself, so raw and wild, really, on the page, this internal life, and finding a way to translate it into something that I felt safe and comfortable putting in front of strangers, but that also still felt true. And I think that balance was very important. But I ended up writing these huge diagrams on the wall of time. And um, the other thing that was very useful was having a very dear friend, my friend Billy, who has a memory like a filing cabinet. Truly, it's extraordinary. So I could call her up and be like, where were we on the Thursday, the third Thursday in May of 2015? And she'd be like, right, we were here. <laughs> we were doing that. Wow. So yeah, I really called in all the resources for that bloody structure. <laughs> but you know, it's so interesting. I bet a lot of people have transplanted memories. You know, not many of us have the time or the wherewithal to do what you did. In some ways, you've you've gone from not existing in time at all to existing in time much more than most people ever do. That must be so fascinating. Yeah, really wild. I mean, it makes me feel like Doctor Who, basically. I am the TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you figured out the timeline and then you decided that each chapter would be a year of recovery, which is a very neat, simple structure. But also in each chapter, you have a place um, that is sort of the, you know, you range to different places, but it's sort of tied to place. And I wonder why that was important to you to include and what that opened up, but also what constraints it placed upon the story that you were trying to tell. Well, that's a very good question, Carrie Plitt. 
first of all. I am delighted that you asked. We it. can't massage each other's egos too much in this interview because <laughs> people are going to get sickened. No, but I'm really pleased you asked me about that because it is a very important thing. And I mean, the year thing also, initially, I really wanted to just write it sort of wild scene to wild scene, very distilled in this very intense way. And, and I realized that that wasn't going to be satisfying to a reader. That was maybe satisfying to me because I was inside the experiences, but I think it would be satisfying to absolutely no one else. But each chapter, it's sort of loosely a year, but it's also not a year. It's very much sort of vignettes from of experiences of things that happened within, contained within the boundary of a year. But lots is left out, obviously. When it came to the other places, I mean, that period of my life was a period of, of enormous itinerance anyway. And I wanted to represent that experience on the page because I wanted to, to tell the truth and tell the story. But I think also it was important to me when writing this book that what I was painting was a very personal picture. It's, it, it's really inviting you inside the mind of this narrator who is me, but she is also not me because she's a, a construct, right? But inside the mind of this narrator is this like profound, deep restlessness. And this restlessness bears out in her life as she moves around a lot, chasing something, desperately trying to find something, which I think is also very much the experience I had anyway. And I think this is true for lots of people of addiction. You're just chasing something all the time. This profoundly unsettled feeling within yourself that is a compulsion to seek relief outside of yourself. And that bore out in my running around to other places and trying different things. But there's also the fact that when you're telling a story, it needs to be dynamic and interesting for the reader. And I think the way you can write about a place that isn't the place you know, like the back of your hand, it can be very, very exciting to read and to write. And I'm somebody who doesn't have a very firm boundary between me and the world around me, which means when I go to new places, I really absorb them in a kind of very physical way. And I wanted to put that down on the page. But also this experience of kind of feeling like you can get high on a new place was was very, very profound for me in, in my early recovery. And it kind of calmed down as I got a bit more used to being sober and, and a bit more mature as well, because of course, this is a time period that spans, I think, a, a period of life where you do a lot of growing up. I mean, probably I came to it a bit late, but you know, from 26, <laughs> the seven years after 26, 27, that really... It's a very profound shift from your 20s into your 30s, I think, for a lot of people. And the motion of the book, I think, re reflects that, that there's a lot of propulsion at the beginning and it sort of slows down a bit towards the end. But yeah, place is very, very important because it's also, it, if you're trying to write vignettes, it gives you this wonderful shape for the reflections contained within the vignettes. You know, what does it taste like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? What does your body feel like in that space? What are you seeking from it? And I loved writing those passages. I loved trying my hardest to evoke the place strongly enough that a reader who'd never been there would feel like they'd been there. And I have no idea if I managed that, but I like <laughs> that was my goal anyway. Yeah, no, it's it really comes out. It's a very sensory book, which is not surprising knowing you, but I, I, I really felt that. And I really felt how different a lot of these places were from each other too. You know, we're moving forward in time, but we're really shifting scene in a way that gives it propulsion, as you say. So let's talk more about the voice that you use to write this book. And the first thing I'll ask is about other voices, which is basically, this is a memoir as discussed, 
but it is also filled with so many other ideas, thinkers, stories. And to me, they feel very effortlessly woven together. So I wonder, how did you find a balance between your story and other people's words and ideas? Yeah, it was definitely difficult to find the balance. I think at the beginning, I wanted to stuff it full. And that was very much my academic hat on. And I think also something to do with a bit of a lack of confidence in my own voice. And it took a, it took a minute for that to come really in some ways. But I think also at the heart of that was each chapter, when I conceived of it, every time it had a very tight set of ideas or symbols that I wanted to explore. And some of them were tied to specific writers or they were tied to specific lines. So for example, the first chapter, there's a lot of Simone Weil in it, who I was reading at the time and her book was important to me, Gravity and Grace at the time. So it's kind of in film criticism, I guess you say it's like intradigetic, like it's all, all of the symbols are, are found within the world of the book, but they come to represent bigger ideas because I also wanted this to be a, a book of ideas. And my goal for it was that it would be a book that could operate on many different levels. And it didn't really matter which level you chose to read it on. You can read it as a, a, a memoir, a narrative of, of a life. You can read it as a book of ideas. You can read it as a more novelistic book where there are symbols that recur and build and change shape. And at the end, there's a payoff. It doesn't matter. I hope however people read it, they get something you know meaningful from it. But for me, part of the fun of writing it was to pack it as densely as I could with ideas and and symbols and thoughts. So the first chapter, the volcano is a metaphor. It's also real. It's also there. I'm there. Stromboli, the island, became a door that could open to bringing in other references. So Jules Verne appears because Journey to the Center of the Earth, his novel, ends up on Mount Stromboli. So I, I kept trying to weave these things back and in and deeper, like kind of stitching and that helped me keep the focus very tight on who who else's words were welcome and who else's words didn't fit. But I think also I really, I was trying to paint a psychological portrait of myself at the time. And each year when I first drafted it, each chapter, each year had a very different tone. And part of the challenge was finding the right voice that could unify all of those things because I wanted to demonstrate on the page the difference, the shift, I guess, in mental state from early recovery to later recovery. Because in my experience of, of recovery, it was profound. I went from being honestly kind of a mad, you know, bu busy bee to, some, to someone who genuinely could experience calm and could experience reflection. And I wanted to replicate that in the writing. When I started, it was too chaotic. It was too different from chapter to chapter. And, and not that I drafted the whole book, but I think I was I was getting to write the third chapter and I realized I had to smooth them out a bit more. I also really wanted to write how I speak as much as I could. That felt very important to me. And again, because I think with memoir, you are you're inviting readers into the head of the writer. So I wanted to give my readers as honest an experience of being inside my head as I could that wouldn't be intolerable for them. Um, and my my head is a jumble of other people's words and art that I love and and writing that I love. And it felt really important to include those things. I also wanted it to be as generous a book as, as it could be. And I love writing that leads me to other writing. It's my favorite kind of writing in lots of ways. And that's definitely the academic in me speaking, but it's it's also just the reader in me. What I look for when I read a book is to come away feeling 
inspired and excited and enlivened. And normally that's because it's jam-packed with ideas that are then going to trigger other things in me. And I really wanted to give the context of these really complicated, often very painful experiences of, of recovery and having Alzheimer's in the family. I wanted to kind of wrap them in these other ideas and these other thoughts and to show that these are profound experiences that you go through in life, but they don't exist separate to art. They don't exist separate to intellect or ideas. It's all bounded together. And and that's what really, I think, living a full and rich life is. And I think often when we talk about these experiences, they can get parceled off into, you know, just the sad stuff or just the happy stuff. And none of that feels quite accurate. And to separate them again from ideas doesn't feel quite accurate either. And I found as I kept writing, I was like, ah, I know what I want to do. I want to show how critical theory is relevant to life, basically. (laughs) I mean, that's like my, you know, my thing. But but actually it's true because there were certain ideas that I came across through reading critical theory that became incredibly useful to me in these experiences that I'm writing about. And I wanted to find a way to include them and also to show that, you know, I didn't have these ideas first, right? I exist in a lineage of everyone I've ever read and every piece of art I've ever looked at. And I, I wanted that to be replicated in the pages, but it was definitely the balance was important because there was a minute where it looked like it was going to be this extremely chaotic, frenzied, you know, mad, manic piece of writing actually. So it was about finding a way back from that. Yeah. So when you found your way back from that, what did you settle upon? Did you have any rules about the kind of voice that you wanted, the kind of sort of way that you wanted to get information across that helped level it out a bit? I wanted it to be as direct as possible. That Mm -hmm. felt very important. And that involved, you know, writing a sentence, reading it back and going, what do you really mean? And I think for me, it was it was partly important to strip that back because in my academic writing, you know, academic writing can be very, it can be about flourishes and it is about hiding when you're writing academically. The first person doesn't exist. And so I had to find a bridge between the way of writing I'd been trained in, which I hadn't done for a while. I'd not been a practicing academic for a while when I was writing, but I was still very shaped by, you know, the last book length thing I'd written was my thesis. So I was still very shaped by that way of thinking and writing and expressing. And it was really about peeling the layers back and just saying, what, but what do you mean? But what do you mean? But what do you really mean? And I think involved in that was peeling the layers back of ego and of the desire to impress or the desire to kind of finagle and shape a reader's perception of you, which I don't know how you avoid that as a human being writing about yourself, but I tried goddamn hard. And again, the way through that was by, again, just stripping it back and asking, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? Like, what's important about this? Yeah, we've talked so much about how good memoir avoids a kind of self-mythology, because that that seems like an obfuscation of the truth rather than a sort of way to push towards it. It reminded me when you were talking about that. So one of the things that surprised me when I read this book was your inclusion of the story of falling in love with your partner. And I I really loved that you included that. And I I wonder if you could just talk about why you decided that that also needed to be a part of the story. It was about balance, really. I didn't know I was going to write about that at all when I started. I probably would have said I 
it didn't even cross my mind. But as I got further and further through, and the more I thought about truth as well, it seemed like I couldn't tell the story without it because I reached a point where when I was writing, I guess that comes in in the second half of the book, by which point my father is very ill. And I'm thinking a lot about love and I'm thinking a lot about freedom and what do these things mean? And the other element that appeared in my life at that time and made me think differently about those things was was John, um, this chance meeting. And then I realized, well, if I'm going to write about John, first of all, I have to make sure he's okay with it. <laughs> and second of all, I hate writing that romanticizes romantic love for the sake of it. I don't think it's useful to us as, as a species. I don't like it personally. How the hell do you write about romantic love without romanticizing it? And that I still feel complicatedly about that, I think, because we live in a culture that is very interested in commodifying it. And I think it's it's complicated to put things in books and expect them not to become commodities because books themselves are commodities. So whatever you put inside a book becomes commodified in some way. And I think it's important to think about that. However, you can tie yourself in knots theoretically and it and it gets you away from the kind of pulsing emotional truth. And that's what became the most important thing to, to tell in the end. And once John gave me the go ahead very generously, it was actually very simple and it gave me a lot of joy to write it down. And I was very grateful that he let me write about it very honestly, which included writing about my doubts and my panic and my, <laughs> you know, my total freak out. <laughs> And when my friend Steve read it for the first time, he was like, I was shipping you guys so hard through the last chapters. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine if you were like, and then we broke up. Although I can I can see you writing that too, you know? Yeah. The, the, you have a fearlessness. If that had been true, I would have done it. <laughs> Thankfully, you're still with me, but let's see what happens after publication. I wonder. <laughs> what was your writing process like? I'm sure our listeners will be interested. You know, did you, do you draft a lot? Do you, do you free write and then go back? Do you edit as you're writing? Does, does that all change? You know, how, how does that look? It won't surprise you to know it's pretty chaotic and <laughs> dynamic, I think would be the like nice way to put it. But no, it changes all the time and it depends so much on which bit. I mean, once I figured out the unifying voice, I was less chaotic in my writing because the voice just built momentum and it felt like being taken by the hand by this narrator who knew how to express things. So all I had to do was come up with the things I wanted to think about and write about and explore through the writing. And she would know how to express them. And when I finally reached the last chapter, it was this kind of, I really felt like it wasn't me in a way. It felt like this woman was just doing it and she was, I couldn't keep up with her almost. But the early stages before I found that flow, when I was playing with with trying each chapter very, very differently, there was one that was written entirely in dialogue based on these recordings I took of me and my dad talking. And it was very, it was kind of, it ended up being basically a bit like a wannabe Beckett play, deeply pretentious, really, really, really like kind of unbearable. And I showed it to someone who very gently just said, hmm, I think maybe this could be good for a radio play at some point. And I was like, okay, sick burn. Okay, back to the drawing board. But you know, that was when I think the fancy footwork was still a way of hiding. Basically, I hadn't quite found the confidence to just do it, I think, and just speak in my in my own voice. So at that stage, there was lots of drafting, there was lots of experimenting. And I was lucky, my editor, Simon, was very pro me experimenting. And he was very pro things being quite strange, if I wanted to go that way. And being given permission to do that 
really helped. I was surprised by how much I needed to be given permission, actually, and how much I needed to give myself permission in the whole process. It was, I think, you know, it's a first book. I think your first book, you learn how to write a book as you write your first book. You don't know how to do it before you've done it. And so the process is a real learning curve. And I wonder, you know, what what the next book will feel like to write, because I think this was an, a particularly singular experience. So, you know, sometimes it was waking up at five in the morning and writing for three hours before everyone in the street woke up. Sometimes it was actually most of the writing in quote marks was done by me anxiously pacing around the streets of North London where I was living at the time being like, why can't I put anything down on paper? But actually that's a really profoundly important part of the writing writing process is the thinking, thinking, thinking. And there were some passages that I'd done so much of the thinking and writing almost in my head when I came to sit down at the laptop, it just tumbled out very clearly and cleanly and I didn't edit that at all. And there were other sections that did need tinkering with. So yeah, it was it was an interesting chaotic process. And then of course you you hand it over to your editor and that's the next phase of the process and and they can see where you haven't explained yourself fully or there's a narrative hole here and you know that was an another interesting thing because actually thank god for collaboration some of the points that he had called forth usually actually i i found responding to to those bits very easy because the voice was ready by that point it was really ready and and i'd had some distance from the text myself so coming back to it i could also see where the holes were but yeah absolute chaos Lot, lots of respect for writers who have a much more contained practice <laughs> <laughs> so finally how did you find an end because i was thinking about this you know this is a story I, and this is true of memoir in general the story could go on, right? And yeah. and especially, I think, with a book that is in some ways about recovery, recovery sort of never ends. That's that's the point is that you're always in recovery. It's always changing, but it it doesn't really have an end. So what? how did you find the end? It sort of found me in a way. So when I had planned it, I planned to end in the seventh year of recovery because I liked this sort of symbolic nature of the number seven. It's a number that symbolizes completion and it's it's in all sorts of places. It's in all sorts of religious scripture as being this kind of perfect divine number. So I was like, great, you know, and the seven year return or whatever it is, like Saturn return, all this kind of stuff. I was like, that's my concept. I can build that in. And I got to my seventh year of recovery and we were in the middle of the pandemic and my father died. And I realized it couldn't be an epilogue. I didn't want it to be an epilogue. It felt completely wrong that it would be the epilogue, but to not include his death wouldn't be honest or truthful. And it absolutely blew out of the water, the structure, the neat structure I had kind of contrived. And it was so important to include that because it was this vital moment to say, like, this is all a contrivance. Any containing of life is a contrivance. A photograph is a contrivance, you know, a letter is a contrivance. Everything is. A narrative absolutely. And so I I spent some time thinking about what it meant to explode the frame of your own structure. And that kind of gave me this chance to find a different ending and and find a a place where it could finish. But I felt very strongly that I didn't want it to end on my father's death because I I think it's a, a narrative cliche to end with the death of somebody. And the point I'm trying to make in the book is that death isn't an end either. Recovery never ends, but also the death of a person doesn't mean that they're 
love disappears or that the love other people had for them disappears. And it doesn't mean that the world that they created around them ends either. And so there is an epilogue because I wanted to show that life goes on because it does. It felt very important to do that. Octavia Bright, thank you so much for being with me on Literary Friction today. I can't believe I get to say that to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for sharing all of this and for writing this wonderful book. And I hope that everyone who hasn't bought it yet will go out and buy it. This was such a, just a small taster of what it has in store, but you can tell from the way Octavia talks about it, that it is just a work of genius. Oh my God, I'm blushing over here down the line from London. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a pleasure to talk to you about it. And this is my first ever interview about the book. So what a way to christen that experience. Well, it's only going to get better from here, baby. (laughs) 